This is episode 55 of the March of History. In our last episode, Caesar managed to beat a far larger Gallic army through some clever manipulation of human psychology. And in doing so, Caesar rescued Quintus Cicero and his legion from the clutches of defeat. And after all of this excitement, Caesar headed back to Samarobriva, where for the first time, he will spend his winter in long-haired Gaul, otherwise known as Free Gaul. For now, at least. (laughs) And it's in that winter at the end of 54 BC, going into 53 BC, that we pick back up our story today. Now, Caesar may have hoped that he had quashed the rebellion quickly enough to have stamped it out for good. But the Gauls have other ideas. You see, news of yet another Gallic defeat was really no big surprise to the Gauls. This had happened time and time again in the Gallic Wars. But news of a Roman legion being utterly wiped out Now, that made the front pages in Gaul. So, the fact that Caesar had avenged this loss and defeated a coalition of Gauls that far outnumbered his own army hardly mattered to many of the Gallic tribes. All they saw was that Rome was mortal, that Rome could bleed like any other state. And Gaul intended to make Rome bleed. Talking about this in the Gallic commentaries, Caesar says, and I quote, For once the setback of Sabinus's death became known, almost all the Gallic states began to discuss war, sending messengers and embassies to all areas to find out what plan of action the rest were adopting, and where the war should begin, and holding assemblies by night in lonely places. Hardly a moment passed all through the winter without Caesar dealing with some cause of anxiety or receiving some news of the plans and rebellion of the Gauls. End quote. Even Caesar is feeling the anxiety now. And in this winter of anxiety for Caesar, Caesar goes into overdrive on politicking and diplomacy. He summons leaders from all over Gaul. Some of these leaders he frightens, telling them that he knows what they're up to. Others he encourages, who seem to already be on his side. And by doing this, he says he keeps a large part of Gaul loyal to him and loyal to Rome. But despite all of this clever diplomacy, a tribe known as the Senones tries to put the king that Caesar had appointed their tribe to death and they do so by popular acclaim. Now, the unpopular, dethroned king does manage to escape his tribe's territory and escape without being killed, but Caesar isn't happy, and so he summons their entire senate to come before him. Now, the Senones senate refuses to come before Caesar, and just like that, a new rebellion begins in Gaul. Caesar says the Gauls attached great importance to one tribe taking the lead in war. So now that the Senones have done this by refusing Caesar's summons, they have essentially declared war on him, Caesar says there was scarcely a Gallic tribe that didn't fall under Roman suspicion that year. Really, there were only two tribes that Rome still trusted, 
one being the Idui, who had been their longest-standing friends in Gaul, and the second, the Remi, who had recently, during the Gallic Wars, provided a lot of support to Caesar. So Caesar trusted these two tribes, but every other tribe in Gaul was suspect in Caesar's eyes. Now, Caesar makes an interesting point on all of this, and unusually, he does so in first person, saying, I, rather than Caesar did this, Caesar did that. Typically, he talks in third person. So in talking about this rebellion, Caesar says, and I quote, I do not know that this is such a cause for surprise, for a number of reasons, but especially because the Gauls were once preeminent among all nations for their excellence in war, and hence were deeply mortified at having so ruined this reputation as to bow to the dictates of the Roman people. End quote. Caesar essentially is saying that the Gauls are ashamed to be taking orders from Rome. They are ashamed because in previous times in their history, they had a fearsome reputation in war. But look at them now. Lapdogs for Caesar, obeying his every command and summons. In their own eyes, despicable. Now, for a time, the de facto leader of this rebellion becomes Indutio Maris in the Treveri. And remember, Indutio Maris is the man that first started going around Gaul and stirring the pot, and so he got the Eberones to attack the 14th Legion and wipe it out. So this whole rebellion that has led to one of Caesar's legions being wiped out was originally started by this man, Indutio Maris, and now he becomes the kind of de facto leader of this rebellion. Indutio Maris now raises yet another army and advances on Labienus' camp. Remember, Labienus is Caesar's right-hand man in Gaul. Now, Labienus, unlike Sabinus and Cotta, refuses to come out of his camp and refuses to engage with Indutio Maris for a number of days. And for a number of days, Indutio Maris and his men are coming outside the Roman camp. They're making fun of the Romans, calling them cowards. They're throwing spears into the Roman camp. And still... Labienus does nothing. Then, at the end of one of these days of taunting the Romans and throwing spears into their camp, Indutio Maris and his troops head back to their camp, thinking that it was a, a good day's hard work. And just then, when they're disorganized and heading back to their camp and their guard is down, Labienus releases all of the Allied cavalry that he had smuggled into his camp only the night before, and gives them orders to ignore everyone else, and to instead go straight for Indutio Maris. So the cavalry comes thundering out of the Roman gates, and they charge, and they just bypass everyone else, head straight for Indutio Maris, who they catch in a riverbank, and there they chop his head off and bring it back to Labienus as a sort of trophy and proof of his death. As you can see, Labienus has a brutal streak but he is a very effective commander. Now, that winter, Caesar also decides not just to replace the legion that he had lost in the ambush, but also to raise a total of three new legions, which was essentially double the number he had lost. And this will bring the total number of Roman legions that Caesar has in Gaul up to ten now. And the reason that Caesar gives for raising these new legions is that he wanted the Roman resources and manpower to seem inexhaustible to the Gauls. 
No sooner had the Gauls wiped out one Roman legion than three new ones appear. And these new legions were the 14th, which was a replacement for the 14th that had been wiped out, the 15th, and the 1st legion. Now, one of these three legions, the 1st legion, was originally raised for Pompey's use in Spain, though it was raised in Caesar's province. This is why its numbering is so different than the rest of Caesar's legions, which go you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. This one's the first. Well, that's because it comes from a different sequence, a different theater of war. And this first legion had even taken an oath to Pompey already at this point. But Pompey didn't have any big wars planned, so he's happy to lend this legion to Caesar for his war, for the good of the Republic, and for friendship to Caesar, Caesar says... Now, all of this may sound like semantics. You know, why are we talking about legion numbers and who raised it and who it took an oath to or whatever? But all of this becomes very important down the road in our story of Caesar marching on Rome. So keep in mind that Caesar now has 10 legions, but one of them has been lent to him by Pompey. Leaving aside the raising of new legions, let's get back to the rebellion in Gaul, which unsurprisingly, still has life, despite Indutio Maris' death. Now, this campaign that Caesar is about to embark on starts in the winter of 53 BC and continues all the way through the fall of that same year. But despite this long campaigning period, Caesar really doesn't fight a single major pitched battle. In fact, the only real battles that are fought are fought by Caesar's legates, and they aren't even significant battles. You see, this rebellion never has one clear leader or one coalesced army, and it's probably not even a united movement, or at least Caesar never gives it a chance to become one. Instead, Caesar spends 53 BC running around Gaul at a frantic pace and putting out just endless embers of rebellion before they can become actual fires. And because of this, because there's no major battles or significant campaigns, we are going to cover this year, 53 BC, in this episode and the next at a relatively high level. Now, before the winter of 53 BC is even over, Caesar says he could see war being prepared on all sides. The Treveri had given control of their tribe now to some of Indutio Maris' relatives. That's not good. The Everones are still being led by Ambiorx. He's the one that had ambushed the 14th Legion. And now the Nervii, the Aduatuki, the Menopii, and all the Germanic tribes in Belgica rise up against Caesar. So I'm not saying German tribes in Germania. These are the German tribes in Belgica. Meanwhile, the Senones are refusing Caesar's summons and are plotting with the Carnutes. So Caesar has problems on all sides. And as always, Caesar then decides that speed and quick action are his best friends. So before winter is even over, he takes four legions and marches into the land of the Nervii. And at this point, the Nervii haven't even mustered their army yet. You see, it was a sign of the Romans' superior logistics that they could even keep an army in the field in the wintertime. The Gauls, meanwhile, on occasion when fighting Caesar, had run out of food even in the summertime. 
And since there is no Nervii army yet, Caesar is able to ravage their land, he seizes their cattle, and he takes many of the Nervii people as slaves. And of course, always generous to his friends, Caesar then gives the cattle and the slaves over to his army as a reward. The Nervii, having little choice, then surrender to Caesar, and Caesar duly takes hostages from them, and just like that, the Nervii are knocked out of the war without putting up a fight. Spring comes around, and Caesar next force marches his legions to the territory of the Senones. And just like the Nervii, the Senones are taken completely off guard. They don't even have time to collect their people into their towns as their leader, Akko, has ordered. So the Senones, like the Nervii, seeing no other option, surrender, and at the Aedui's request, that Caesar's allied tribe, Caesar decides to pardon the Senones, though he does take hostages from them. Now, the tribe conspiring with the Senones was the Carnutes. And the Carnutes now see that the Senones have been defeated and surrendered to Caesar, so they follow suit and they surrender as well. And this time, it's the Remi who come forward to Caesar and plead for mercy on their behalf, which Caesar, as is his custom, is happy to grant. Now that Caesar has stamped out these embers of rebellion, he focuses his attention on the Treveri and the Eberones, led by Ambiorix. Caesar is convinced that Ambiorix won't stand and fight Caesar in a pitched battle, which Caesar would love, because the Romans do great at pitched battles. Instead, Caesar is afraid that Ambiorix may try to hide in the wilderness and drag this fight out and make it into some kind of guerrilla warfare. Now, one of the tribes bordering the Eberones' territory is the Monopii. This is the tribe you'll remember from previous episodes. is the tribe that runs and hides in their marshes of their territory every time they get on Caesar's bad side. That's their strategy. They don't stand and fight. They run and hide in the marshes, and it's very difficult for the Romans to get at them then. Now, the Monopii are allied with the Eberones and with the Treveri. These are the tribes rebelling against Caesar. So Caesar is concerned that Ambiorix will eventually attempt to hide in the Monopii marshes if Caesar comes direct for Ambiorix. And so because of this, Caesar decides to go after the Monopii first. It also just makes sense to go after the Eberon's weaker ally first and eliminate their allies one by one. So Caesar marches with five legions this time without the baggage train to the territory of the Monopii, and sure enough, true to form, the Monopii take all their possessions and they retreat and run into their marshes, thinking for all the world that the Romans can't touch them there. In response, Caesar divides his legions into three different flying columns. Each of these three columns then begins constructing causeways over the marshes. And as they march into the marshes and into the territory of the Monopii, they set fire to villages and capture large numbers of cattle and people, both of which they probably sold for money. Now, seeing that the Romans had this incredible engineering ability and that their marshes could no longer protect them, the Monopii surrender. And so Caesar takes hostages from them and leaves Comius of the Atrobates, the man that had gone with him to Britain, 
with some armed guards behind to keep an eye on the Monopii. Now, as Caesar was busy with the Monopii, the Treveri, the ones who had been led by Indutio Mars before he got his head chopped off, had gathered an army and marched to the camp of Labienus again. This is like the third time they've done this. Now, we don't know how large this new army of the Treveri is, but we do know that Labienus has two and a half legions with him. And the two different sides, the Romans and the Treveri, are camped about a mile apart with a river between them. And this river had a steep bank and was difficult to ford, so it was a bit of a barrier. Labienus then takes a page out of Caesar's playbook and has his army pretend to retreat in disarray from the Treveri. The Treveri see this, and they have been waiting on their side of the river and not engaging with the Romans because they were waiting for some allied German tribes to cross the Rhine and join them. But They now see the Romans fleeing in disarray, and they think, oh, we would be cowards not to pursue them. So they then cross the river and start pursuing Labienus and his legions. And once they had crossed this difficult-to-cross river, Labienus suddenly has his troops wheel around and face the Gauls, not in disarray, but in battle order. The Treveri are shocked by this. Here they thought they were chasing a defeated and fearful foe, but the Romans don't look so fearful or defeated anymore. The Romans then throw their javelins at the Treveri and charge them, and the Treveri, who were not prepared for a fight when they crossed the river, duly flee and scatter into the nearby woods. Labienus then orders his cavalry to pursue them, and the cavalry manages to capture and kill a large number of the Treveri. A few days later, the Treveri surrender. Now, like I said, among the different allies of the Treveri were a number of Germans. These Germans had been on their way to cross the Rhine and to join the Treveri in the fight against Caesar, but when they heard about the Treveri's defeat at the hands of Flabianus, they thought, what's the point of crossing the Rhine now? So they turned back and headed back for their home territory. They may have thought, well, you know, that's all settled, let's get back to life. But for Caesar, it's not enough for them to just turn around. Caesar's mad that they even planned to send men against him to begin with. And he wants to teach these Germans yet another lesson. Clearly they hadn't learned from his first crossing of the Rhine. So Caesar decides to cross the Rhine a second time. He also makes the point that he didn't want Ambiorix to be able to hide there either. Remember, Ambiorix is kind of his main target in all of this. That's the guy that led the ambush on his legion and wiped out his legion. And that is what Caesar is most angry about. Now, this time in crossing the Rhine, there would be no long, loving descriptions of the engineering project of the bridge. The second bridging of the Rhine is simply routine at this point for the Romans. And in only a few days, Caesar's legions construct a second bridge a little ways upstream from where the first bridge had been. And Caesar then leaves a garrison on the Gallic side of the bridge and marches his army into Germania for the second time. Once over the Rhine, Caesar talks to his ally, the Ubii. This was the tribe that he had made friends with last time he had crossed the Rhine. 
And the UBI tells Caesar that the reinforcements sent to the Treveri came from, well, the Swaybi, of course. Remember, the Swaybi were that most powerful tribe in Germania, at least according to Caesar. They had been the tribe that had started to gather an army to face him. They had also been the tribe that Ariovistus had come from. Ariovistus, you may or may not remember, he was in the earlier episodes of the Gallic Wars. He had been a German king that had crossed the Rhine and had subjugated a portion of Gaul that Caesar had gotten into a trash-talking contest with before fighting him in war and chasing Ariovistus back across the Rhine. Ariovistus had also come from the Swaybi. Now, just like the first time that Caesar had crossed the Rhine, again, the Swaybi start gathering an army to face Caesar. But once the Swaybi receive news that Caesar has actually already crossed the Rhine, they retreat deeper into their territory, to the edges of a massive forest. Now, Caesar, like in his first crossing the Rhine, has no intention of being drawn deep into Germania to fight on ground of the Swaybi's choosing. That's just not smart for military matters, and it doesn't line up with his strategy or his objectives of conquering Gaul. And in the commentaries, Caesar also calls the Swaybi ignorant barbarians and says that they didn't practice agriculture at all, any of the Germans really, he says, and were instead pastoralists. So Caesar says he is worried that his army won't find enough food to live off of if they march deep into Germania to fight the Swaybi. And just a note here, archaeology has shown that this is not true. The Germans of this time period, of Caesar's time period, did indeed have agriculture. However, it may have been that the German population density of this time was much lower than in Gaul, and so there would have been less food for the Romans to pillage and steal as they march. So Caesar's reasoning of there not being enough food may have been accurate, but his reasoning for why this was the case, because they don't practice agriculture, was not true. Now, for whatever reason, whether it really is this lack of food Caesar fears or whether it's the sway by that he fears, Caesar then marches his army back across the Rhine and back into Gaul. But this time, to give the Germans a visible reminder of his ability to cross into Germania whenever he chooses, Caesar leaves the bridge mostly intact and only dismantles a 200-foot section near to the German side of the river. Caesar also has his legions build a four-story tower on the Gallic end of the bridge and leaves 12 cohorts, which is over a legion, to guard it, showing the Germans that he has the ability and possibly the will to come back over this bridge at any time. And that is where we will end our episode today. In our next episode, after smashing the allies and potential allies of Ambiorix and the Eberones, Caesar is finally ready to take the fight to the Eberon's homeland and avenge the 14th Legion once and for all. Now before you go, let me make the monumental announcement that I have released the Elysia video on YouTube now under the Trevor Travels YouTube channel. You can find a link to the channel in the description of any of our podcast episodes, including this one. And this video, it comes out before we've gotten to Elysia in our podcast, but I had the video finished editing, so I thought, why not? Let's release it. Let's get it out to the people as quickly as possible. 
And in this video, I travel to Elysia, which, if you don't know yet, is Caesar's kind of crowning achievement, his, his grand battle in the Gallic Wars, the final climax battle of the Gallic Wars. So it's a little bit ahead of the podcast, but like I said, I had it finished, so why not release it? And in this video, I head to Elysia. I find the Gallic village of Elysia still there on the hilltop, just like Caesar describes it. I see the fortifications that Caesar would have built, and I even do some exploring around the hilltop of Elysia, looking for the weak point in Caesar's lines where the final climax of the battle happened. And I find it. And in this video, I also tell the story of the Battle of Elysia with Elysia as the backdrop, which I think is pretty amazing. So go ahead to the YouTube channel and check this video out. It's about 30 minutes long, so it's not too long. You can watch it on your lunch break at work or you know, anytime you have a free 30 minutes. Just sit down and check it out. If you like this podcast, if you're into history, you will love this YouTube video. And like I said, it's a little bit ahead of the podcast, but eventually we will get to Elysia in the podcast as well. Also, don't forget that the March of History has a PayPal. If you liked the episode today, you can contribute a dollar. Just a dollar a show will help the March of History to grow. So much more than you realize. If everybody just contributes a dollar for an episode, it would help this podcast so much. We could get new audio recording equipment and improve the sound quality and do many more things. Also, thank you to all of our patrons, our patrons on Patreon. As I always say, this podcast would not be possible without you. You guys are the rock in which the podcast is built on. So thank you so much, and I thank all of our listeners for listening. I will talk to you on episode 56 of the March of History.